If you have your Bible with you, and I hope you do this morning, please turn to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 16 through 23 this morning, which is all about being courageously content in our walk with Jesus. See, false teachers thrive off of discontentment, just like salesmen. Think about it. When you go shopping, a salesman must either find you discontent or make you discontent. When you walk into a store, they try to persuade you that the computer that you have is not the best, the jeans that you're wearing are not the latest, the haircut that you have on your head needs improvement in the shoes you have on or so last year. If the sales associate can make you think that what you have isn't good enough anymore, you are instantly vulnerable to a good sales pitch. That's exactly what false teachers do. It is Satan's favorite tactic. Remember the Garden of Eden? The only reason why God doesn't want you to eat this fruit is because it'll make you like God knowing good and evil. In other words, you're missing out. Humanity's fall is a direct result of Satan's fatal injection of doubt and discontentment into this world. The tactic was so effective in the garden, Satan's not changed his playlist yet. It was exactly the same attack he was launching against the Colossian church to whom this letter was written. False teachers had begun to creep into the church. And they had started raising doubts concerning the Colossians' dependence and devotion to Jesus Christ. Satan's salesmen were trying to make the believers in the church feel like they were missing out on something. Knowing and trusting in Jesus Christ is good, the message went, but if you're not careful, that might get all, that might be all you get. See, there's this philosophical concept you need to grasp. There's this spiritual mediator you need to be approaching. There's this specialist you need to see. There's this feast you need to observe. There's this vision you need to, uh, you need to hear. This private word you need to receive. Because there's so much more than just Jesus. And if Jesus is all you have, man, you're missing out. Ladies and gentlemen, we still live in a culture like this. Satan still hasn't changed his tactics. We still live in a Colossian culture that is constantly telling us as followers of Christ, you are missing out. You mean you believe that God only speaks to you through his word? Man, you're missing out. You mean you haven't prayed or spoken in tongues? Man, you're missing out. You mean you haven't read this book by so-and-so on self-improvement or sociology? Man, you're missing out. You mean you haven't observed Lent or the church holy calendar this year? Man, you're missing out. You mean you haven't followed the Pope yet on Twitter or prayed to Mary or observed the Passover or worshipped on Saturday? You haven't read this book, watched this speaker, listened to this song, gone to this conference? Man, there's so much more you're missing out on. See, we live in Colossae. So the message of this book is a very important one for us. Christ is enough. He is sufficient. He is supreme. He is Savior. He is God. He alone can redeem. He alone can complete. He alone can fulfill. He alone is all you need. Be content with Christ. 
False teachers teach the exact opposite message. The first tactic false teachers will take, as we saw back in verse 8, is to tell you this. Jesus is not enough. You need to be up on current worldly philosophy and thoughts. Because if all you know is Jesus, Jesus is not enough. And we understand this pressure, don't we? You mean all you know is the Bible? Well, who could expect to get anything useful from you regarding marriage or parenting or relationships or emotions or thoughts, etc.? I'll never forget during my first year's pastoring, a young lady came up to me after the sermon and said this, well, that was the most biblical message I had ever heard, and it, she didn't say it as a compliment. This is the pressure, by the way, that liberal professors put on believing students in college all the time. I know I've felt it. Oh, you poor, sheltered Christian. You mean you've never been exposed to this scholar? You've never heard of this study? You've never seen this survey? You've never read this treatise? You've never been exposed to all these other philosophies and religions? All you've studied is the Bible, you poor, sheltered little thing. See, Satan will try to intimidate us into thinking that the revelation of Jesus Christ is not enough. We must know worldly philosophy. In fact, there's a long list of universities and seminaries that were formerly Christian and formerly faithful to Jesus, but are so no longer because they fell captive to this lie. The lie that Christ is not enough, you must also know worldly empty philosophy. Well, there are three other concepts that Satan uses to inject doubt and discontentment into believers' lives in order to drive us away from Jesus. Three other things that we must reject as followers of Christ either as supplements or as substitutes for Jesus. Those three things are legalism, mysticism, and aestheticism. And I'll explain what each one of those words mean when we come to them. Paul tells us that in order to be courageously content with Jesus Christ, we must cling to Christ, not legalism. That's in verses 16 through 17. We must cling to Christ, not mysticism. That's in verses 18 through 19. And finally, we must cling to Christ and not aestheticism. And that's in verses 20 through 23. This is how to be courageously content with Christ. These are the type of Christians that must be in our day. Those who are courageously content with Christ. When Satan attempts to drive us away from Jesus by using the lies of legalism, mysticism, or aestheticism, we must reject those attempts and steadfastly cling to Him who is our head, Jesus Christ. With that in mind, let's read Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 23. Paul writes, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on aestheticism and worship of angels, going on in details about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together with its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. 
If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of this world, why, as if you are still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and aestheticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This is the word of God whose law has become our delight so that we might not perish in our affliction. Let's pray. Father, we come to listen because we believe that this is your word. We believe that it shows us Christ. We believe that it powerfully works in those who believe it. And so, Father, we simply pray this morning that you would give us eyes to see, that you would give us ears to hear, that you would give us hearts to obey for your honor and for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, before we begin to unpack the dangers that legalism mysticism and aestheticism possessed for believers in Jesus Christ this morning, I want you to see really quickly what their common aim is before we dive into any of these. Satan attempts to spread the message of legalism, mysticism, and aestheticism among us as followers of Jesus Christ so that as verse 19 of our passage says, we would not hold fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. You see, Satan wants to break our hold on Jesus. It's just like in a football game. When you grab that football and you start running towards the end zone, the opposing team has one single solitary goal in its mind. It is to make you let go of that ball. That's exactly what Satan's goal is for you, believer. It is to make you let go of your supreme, pure devotion and hold on Jesus Christ. And if Satan can get you to hold on to anything else in addition to Jesus, then your hold on Christ becomes significantly weaker. Satan doesn't have to make you let go of Jesus. He just has to make you hold on to Jesus and something else as your supreme authority and love in life. As 2 Corinthians 11 verse 3 says, Satan has to just lead your thoughts astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Jesus Christ. Now to be clear this morning, Satan cannot make you lose your salvation in Christ. If you're in Jesus, you're eternally secure. But Satan can make you lose your effectiveness for Christ. As verse 19 says, if Satan can weaken your devotion and commitment to Jesus, if he can make you not hold fast to Christ, then Satan can make you weak, he can make you ineffective, he can make your life and your message and your ministry so diluted that it is of no eternal spiritual good at all. Just like useless lot in the gates of Sodom. 
We don't want that. We want, as chapter 1, verse 10 says, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. We do not want to break our hold on Christ. And so the central message of these two paragraphs that we're about to study as a church is clear. Hold fast to Jesus. What are you doing with your life if you are not pursuing Him above all? Cling to Him and let nothing break your focus, your devotion, and your pursuit of Christ. Be courageously content. And so he says first, cling to Christ, not legalism. It's in verses 16 through 17. Remember back in verse 14 of this chapter, in chapter 2, Paul says that one of the goals that God achieved at the cross was to, quote, cancel the record of debt that stood against us, notice, with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So one of the glorious truths about Christ's salvation is that at the moment of our deliverance, we as believers in Jesus Christ died to the legal demands of the law. This truth is heralded throughout the pages of Scripture. Romans 6, 14-15 repeats twice, back to back, to believers, you are not under the law, but you are under grace. Galatians 4, 5 says that God redeemed us out from under the law. And Romans 10, verse 4 says that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes in Him. In other words, the Old Testament legal requirements, they're all gone. They're nailed to the cross where He who perfectly fulfilled the law died in our place and offered up His perfect life and righteousness for us. Being in Jesus, all the demands of the law are fulfilled. And now, according to Romans 7, verse 6, we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we would serve no longer, that we'd serve in the new way of the Spirit and no longer in the old way of the written code. As Philip Bliss, the singing evangelist under D.L. Moody, penned, free from the law, oh, happy condition. Jesus has bled, and there is remission. Cursed by the law and bruised by the fall, grace has redeemed us once and for all. All the Old Testament legal requirements are gone, fulfilled for us in Christ, nailed to the cross. Therefore, Paul says, if that is indeed the case, if you being in Christ are now free from the legal demands of the Old Testament law, then he says this in verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Guess what all those things are? They are legal requirements of the Old Testament law. Those Colossian heretics were coming into the church and they were trying to dump all these Old Testament Jewish legal requirements on these New Testament Gentile believers. A few examples Paul mentions is food and drink. These false teachers were going back to the Jewish National Covenant, back to Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14, and they were saying to these Gentile believers who had never been exposed to anything like this, you've got to stop eating rabbit, pork, shrimp, bacon, lobster, crab, and all the stuff like that. And only eat these foods and drinks instead. Of course, these false teachers ignored the teaching of Christ in Mark 7, verses 18 through 19, when he told his disciples, Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, 
since it enters not into his heart but into his stomach and is thus expelled. And then he says this, thus he declared all foods clean. They ignored the vision of Peter in Acts 10, 12 through 16, where God told Peter three times that all the foods were now clean and that those dietary restrictions that had once caused a separation between the Jews and the Gentiles were removed. They were gone in Christ. These false teachers also ignored the decision of the Jerusalem council, which was read this morning. In Acts 15, 1-11, where Peter says to those who are wanting to impose the Jewish code on Gentile believers, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke of bondage on the necks of the disciples that neither our Jewish forefathers nor we have been able to bear? And finally, those false teachers were ignoring the previous writings of Paul concerning the spiritual insignificance of food. Like in 1 Corinthians 8.8, Paul says this, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and we're no better off if we do. Why? Because Romans 14.17 says this, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or of drinking, but rather of righteousness, of peace, and of joy in the Holy Spirit. In short, These false teachers were trying to put all of these Gentile believers under the bondage of Jewish dietary legalism by ignoring the teachings of Christ and ignoring the teachings of Christ's apostles. Another area that the false teachers were trying to pass legalistic judgment off on the Colossian believers was with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Now doubtless the false teachers pointed to the list of the feasts in Leviticus 23 and said things like this, well, look, the feast of the Passover, first fruits, weeks, trumpets, atonements, and booths, they're all called the appointed feasts of the Lord, not of Israel. Therefore, you should observe them. In fact, if you're not obeying God unless you're observing all these feasts. They said the same thing about new moons. They would go back to Numbers 28, 11 through 15, and they would say that every time there's a new moon, there has to be a sacrifice offered. And finally, the false teachers tried to judge the Colossian believers in regards to Sabbaths. They'd go back to the Old Testament and they would say this, Hey, Saturday is the day when the people of God used to worship. It was the day that was set apart by God. So what do you think you're doing worshiping on Sunday? Of course, they ignored the clear teaching of Exodus 31, 16 through 17, which states that the Sabbath was a sign forever between the Lord and the people of who? Israel. They ignored the reality that of all the Ten Commandments, the one commandment that is never repeated in the entire New Testament is you shall keep the Sabbath day. You shall remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. In fact, what we do find in the New Testament is Jesus saying, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. They ignored the writings of Paul in Romans 14, verse 5, who said concerning honoring one day above another, let everyone be convinced in their own mind that what they're doing is what God wants them to do. And finally, they ignored the truth of Hebrews 4, 3 through 9, which says that there is a Sabbath rest for the people of God, and it's not called Saturday, newsflash. It's called Christ. They ignored the reality that after Christ rose from the dead on Sunday, Acts 20, verse 7, and 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2, both state that the church met together to worship on the first first day of the week, Sunday. In short, 
these false teachers were again trying to put these Gentile believers under the bondage of Jewish ceremonial legalism by ignoring the teachings of Christ and ignoring the teachings of Christ's chosen apostles. Even though Paul clearly says in Romans 9 verse 4 that all these things like food and drink laws, like festivals and new moons and Sabbaths, all belong to Israel under the old covenant, these false teachers ignored all of that and said, no, this needs to be applied to New Testament believers that are Gentiles. All these requirements are for the church. Listen, believers. Biblically, when New Testament Gentile believers in Christ begin to put themselves under Jewish cultural regulations, restrictions, and ceremonies, that is never anything commendable. That is always something appalling. Do you realize that this morning? This is why Paul says to the Galatians in Galatians 4, 9 through 11, now that you have come to know God or rather be known by him, how? In Christ, how can you turn back once again to the weak and the worthless elemental principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? And then Paul says this, you observe days and months and seasons and years I am afraid that I have labored over you in vain. Returning to the Jewish law is not a step towards maturity. It is a step towards immaturity. This is the first thing that Paul warns about that Satan will try to use to distract believers from Jesus. Legalism. What do I mean by legalism? I mean this. The idea that believers need to either observe obsolete or extra-biblical requirements, restrictions, or ceremonies to be mature and to grow spiritually. Now at this point, I was half tempted to say, okay, now I'm going to talk about legalism in terms of how we know it culturally in America, in conservative circles at least, right? Legalism is the idea, well, if you're truly spiritually mature, then this is what it'll look like. You'll read from this Bible translation, right? You'll wear these clothes to church. If I ever see flip-flops in here, you're getting chucked out of the room, right? You got to listen to this type of music. Better look like this and sound like this. You better not have a beard on your face, right? Your hair better not go over your collar. You better be wearing a hat, women, when you come into church. And don't be wearing pants. That'd be terrible. What is that? It's Christ plus rules must equal spiritual maturity. Do you find any of the things that I just mentioned in Scripture? It's legalism. Externalism means spirituality. It's not what the Bible teaches. So I was tempted to do that, and there's a whole sermon that could be preached there. But... It's not what Paul focuses on, does he? He doesn't teach about American cultural legalism. He teaches about Jewish legalism. And you might be sitting here this morning thinking, yeah, and that's why I've been bored stiff in this sermon so far, because, I mean, this is something that will never apply to me. Oh, wake up, believer. 
can this happen today? Do you think that someone might walk up to you someday and say, wow, you're not doing all these things? Well, I'm on the high road. You need to come up with me. Can this happen today? You better believe it. Because of the popular misconception that exists today in American churches that the church is the new Israel, false teachers from Messianic Judaism and a limited extent to the sacred name movement, to the worldwide church of God, and most recently to the Hebrew roots movement, false teachers grab a hold of that misconception and they say this, well, if the church is the new Israel, then the church needs to be following Israelite rules. I'll never forget. I was a few weeks into my first pastorate, and as I was sitting In the adult Sunday school class, the teacher who had previously expressed an interest in Messianic Judaism asked the class to take a week and come back with reasons why we as Christians ought to worship on Sunday. I thought that was a great homework assignment, so I went home and I did it. I came back next Sunday. uh, He asked for all our results, and I gave mine. I said similar things that I just mentioned to you this morning. I said that the Sabbath was a sign of the national covenant that existed between God and Israel. That the command to observe the Sabbath was never repeated in the New Testament. And instead, Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. And Hebrews says that he's our Sabbath rest. I shared from Scripture how the early church met together on the first day of the week because of Christ's resurrection. And this is called the Lord's Day in Revelation by the Apostle John. I shared from Romans chapter 14 that we ought to be fully convinced in our own mind regarding days and Sabbaths, which means at best, Sabbath observance is now an issue of Christian conscience, not God's law, or at worst, it is something that Scripture highly warns against. You know what this Sunday school teacher did? He did exactly what those false teachers were doing to the Colossian church. He ignored everything I presented. He ignored everything that Jesus and the apostles ever said. He completely ignored it and insisted that Christians only worship on Sunday because of some Catholic council that happened in the Middle Ages and we ought to be worshiping on Saturdays. I was shocked. I thought, well, maybe he didn't hear what I said, so I repeated myself and then I finished with this passage in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. And again, this man ignored what I said and firmly insisted once again that Sunday worship is simply a medieval tradition and that we need to return to our Hebrew roots. I thought, maybe I'm not being very clear. I'm a new pastor. So I read this passage again, at which point he angrily told everyone in the room that if we did not worship on Saturday and observe the the Jewish feasts, we were sinning against God. So there I was with Colossians 2 open in front of me realizing this man is judging the church in regards to festivals and new moons and Sabbaths, saying that those believers were immature because they were simply following Jesus and they weren't following the Old Testament laws. So there I was, a 26-year-old pastor, dealing with only a month of experience under my belt with a straight-up Judaizer standing up and teaching in the church. What was I to do? Well, this is what Paul did when he wrote to Galatians, when he wrote to the Galatians in Galatians 2, 4 through 5, when false brothers were secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So shaking with fear, I stood up in the middle of that class 
And I said, listen, this is what God's word says. Colossians 2, 13 through 17. He has forgiven us of all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. These he set aside, nailing them to the cross. Therefore, let no one, let no one judge you in questions of food or drink or with regards to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. He shut his mouth. He left the room and never came back, but he went somewhere else. So yes, I can attest This still happens today. That is why Paul warns the Colossians and us, don't let anyone pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Don't let anyone judge you. Don't let anyone intimidate you, believer. You have Christ. Christ is all you need. You are complete in Him. As Charles Spurgeon wrote, Jesus Christ bore our punishment, and God will never require at my hands the fulfillment of that law which Christ has honored in my stead. For then there would be injustice in heaven, and that be far from God. Don't let anyone impose a legalistic system on you, even if it comes straight from the Mosaic law. Do not even put up with it for a moment. It is not a sign of maturity. It is a sign of immaturity. Why? Because look at verse 17. These are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to who? Christ. Let me put it this way. Why observe rules of eating and drinking when Christ has already shown himself to be the true bread of life according to John chapter 6? Why observe the Passover when Christ, our perfect Passover lamb, has already been sacrificed for the perfection of the saints, according to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, verse 7? Why observe the Sabbath when the bringer of eternal rest and peace has already been given to us, according to Hebrews 4, 9 and Matthew 11, 29? Why submit to any ceremonies when they all find their fullness and meaning in Jesus? Why worship and look on the shadow when you can worship and look on the substance, which is Christ? As Hebrews 10 verse 1 says, the law was but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. It is true. When a shadow comes around the corner, it's the first thing that you see, right? But as soon as the person comes, you forget about the shadow and you embrace the person with both arms, Why? Because it's the reality to be focused on the shadow when the reality has come is bizarre, strange, inordinate. Let me give you a dorky illustration. Char's parents have on their wall this little silhouette drawing of each one of their daughters. The first time I went to visit Chara when we were dating, it was one of the first things I saw in their house. Now, Chara's silhouette is cute. Right? I mean, it bears a faint resemblance to who she is. The curve of her chin, the shape of her nose. I can appreciate it because of that. But how weird would it have been for me to turn away from Chara, who was standing there in the flesh, beautifully I might add, and to decide to spend the rest of my visit not looking at Chara, 
but instead looking at that little silhouette that's drawn on the wall. That would have been weird, creepy, bizarre. That would have been the end of the dating relationship. <laughs> Listen, for a Christian who now has the glorious reality that is Jesus Christ, to look upon, to live for, to worship, and to follow, to instead look upon, live for, and follow the law, Jesus says, that is weird. Scripture says that is weird and bizarre also. Romans 7 verse 4 says this, My brothers, you have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you can belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that you may at last bear fruit for God. When Christians boast about how they're starting to observe Old Testament ceremonies and feasts, I don't look at them as mature. I look at that as weird, as troubling, and as extremely dangerous. Why are you walking in the shadow lands when the sun has risen? He's God's son. He's God's chosen one. Listen to him. Follow him instead. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you Hold fast to Christ. Be courageously content with Him. Let no one judge you or intimidate you. You are content in Christ. Cling to Christ, not legalism. No list, listen to me, no list of cultural rules or regulations ever created can ever cause true spiritual growth, maturity, freedom, or fulfillment. Only nearness to Jesus can. So cling to Him. Do not trust in rules and regulations to do what only the Redeemer can do. To pardon you, purify you, and perfect you. As is written in the song, Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All could never sin erase. Thou must save and save by grace. Cling to Christ, not legalism. There's so much more, but we'll have to end it here. For now, this is the Word of God. From Colossians 2, 16-17, which I now commit to your further study and your faithful obedience until he returns. To that end, while the men come forward for communion, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We thank you that when he died on the cross, he not only paid the penalty for all of our sins and transgressions, but he offered up his perfect life that he lived under the law on our behalf. Father, we thank you that he who always did your will has now given to us his perfect righteousness as we become one with Him in faith. Father, we thank You that this morning we know that we are accepted before You. 
We know that we are forgiven before you. We know that we stand spiritually complete before you in Christ alone. And Father, we recognize that because of that, all life and all maturity and all growth only comes from Him. Father, how many times have we trusted in our own efforts to bring about spiritual maturity, to bring about victory over sin? The only one who can bring victory is Christ. So Father, help us to cling to Him and not to man-made rules, regulations, or restrictions to obsolete laws that have already been fulfilled in Jesus, but help us to walk in freedom, to walk in the freedom of Christ, and so fulfill the law of Christ, which is love for you and love for each other. Help us to remember that our Christian life is to be all about Jesus, not just mostly. May we enjoy the time we have this morning as a church celebrating him and him alone in communion. Give us grace towards this end, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.